Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization working to protect the ocean. I'm John Sherburn, the show's producer, and today's episode features Andy McNabb. Andy tells a story of his five-month sail from New Zealand to San Francisco, and he also shares insights into his career as an accomplished boat builder and yacht construction executive, plus changes occurring to promote more eco-friendly yachting practices. For more information, check out futurefrogmen.org and look for us on social media at Future Frogmen. Let's get into it. You know, uh, we, we've met, uh, we're both uh, on uh, board of directors together, and it's been really interesting getting to know at least a little bit more about you and uh, your really interesting career. And we're going to talk about that because among your uh, many roles, you've been involved with yacht construction, yacht project management, and so forth. And it hadn't really occurred to me the environmental impact that uh, occurs from yacht construction and operation and even afterlife. So I'm anxious to talk about that with you. Um, but before we go there, uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, particularly, uh, you know, where you grew up and uh, what brought you into this whole uh, marine environment? Well, I was born and raised in New Zealand, which is a marine environment because everybody builds their own boats. You're either surfing, surfing, sailing, always around the water. No one's in the whole country very far away from the water at all anyway. but So we just grew up always by the ocean. And then eventually I got into surfing uh, quite a bit and then um, got into boat building just through a friend and myself decided to build a catamaran so we could sail up the coast and down the coast and different islands to go surfing. And um, there was never really a career involved in all of this. I started out doing accounting and economics and computer programming back in the 70s with punch cards, etc., etc. But that didn't last long. And then, um, as I said, everyone had boats. We all sailed each other's boats and together. And one night, uh, we decided with some friends to sail. We wanted to sail to Fiji, which everyone goes up to Fiji in the South Pacific in the winter. And uh, then we decided we would go further afield to Tahiti. And then we thought, well... Who wants to come back? And we looked at each other and said, no one wanted to come back. I said, okay, well, let's go to San Francisco. <laughs> so <laughs> we cold-molded wooden 36-foot trimaran, a Lock Crowther design. Lock is an Australian guy. I think he's still around, very famous. He got into designing these big catamaran ferries and stuff that have been built in Australia, big, huge aluminum vessels. So we sailed up through the Pacific. This is 1979. We had no money. Um, navigated celestial navigation all the way. We had one VHF radio, uh, sorry, a single sideband radio, which we never used. All the navigation was, you know, dead reckoning and celestial, which is a contrast, jumping ahead, just a contrast to today's boats where everybody has a cell phone in their pocket with GPS and instant communication wherever they are in the world. So I'm pretty pleased we were able to do what we did back in the 70s. And then that just led into, I was boat building seriously in New Zealand before we left for an aluminum and wooden boat builder, McMullen and Wing, and uh, worked on a couple of high-profile American race boats. And then when I got to the States, contacted some people, and I sort of embarked on a career of 
building big race boats, they were usually at a composite um, with a aluminum frame structure inside to take sort of keel and mast loads and everything like that. And that led to quite a bit of building in England and Europe. Then that transpired to joining the fledgling New Zealand America's Cup team. It was New Zealand Challenge in those days. Now it's called Team New Zealand. Um, and that was being held in Fremantle in Australia, Western Australia. And then from there, just on a you know global basis, you've got a big network working back in the UK and then working in Europe doing project management. The boats were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's quite interesting being part of the development of the super yachts, which are now, you know, I mean, they are hundreds of feet long, um, mainly because of computer design, CAD design, computerized hydraulics enabled designers and engineers to do a lot more because everything, you know, on a sailboat, everything was hand powered, basically, um, pulling in sails, pulling up sails, stuff like that. But with the computer design, stress loading, element analysis, designers could design bigger, better, stronger hulls and um, you control the boats easy and it's just developed from there. So one of the one of the boats I built in California, which would be 1982, we lofted the whole thing. You draw out the boat first and then you take patterns off the drawing to convert whether you're building it out of wood or aluminum or steel. So I drew the whole thing. You drew, you drew it out in those days. You got a series of offsets on a piece of paper and you drew a huge grid and you draw it out full scale. And then you pattern it, and then you transfer the pattern to the material you're building out of. In this case, it was aluminum. And then you cut it by hand. Nowadays, everything's on computer. It's designed on computer. The material, the aluminum, is is cut by lasers or water jets or plasma. Uh, everything's computer controlled. And then the guys just sort of put it together like a big sort of erector set. But anyway, that's sort of uh, very quick overview on how I got to uh, where I am now, which is kind of interesting I've been doing all this for 40 years and I'm back down on the shop floor restoring a classic powerboat for a guy back drawing out everything by hand and cutting it and um, rebuilding it again so I've, I've sort of gone full circle <laughs> <laughs> and that's here in Connecticut correct yeah in Connecticut here yeah yeah how big a boat is that uh, it's 31 feet it's only a little one um, but it's a classic it's a Bertram 31 uh, that was designed by C. Raymond Hunt back in the 60s, and it revolutionized in powerboats, uh, especially, you know, down in Florida, going sport fishing out into the Gulf Stream. And it was a hull form that was pretty radical in those days. On a global basis, people are buying these things up and, and restoring them. Um, it's like, I guess the nearest thing I can sort of compare it with would be like people that restore old cars you know mustangs or something like that and they get an old mustang and they pull the whole thing apart and repaint it and build it and that's what we're doing with this boat so it's pretty cool so let's come back to the boat building but before we get too far away i just want to return to your uh, your voyage there because that's that's interesting just get a little kind of clarification so you you left do i have this correct you went you left uh, new zealand with a friend or some friends yeah, well, it was, it was uh, the guy that built the boat. Um, he was actually a beautiful boat builder craftsman. Uh, his girlfriend had a two-year-old baby uh, and me and one other guy, and we set off from Auckland in New Zealand and uh, headed up to, first stop was Rarotonga. And, and you, uh, 
you just you just continued uh, as you explained. It wasn't like you returned to New Zealand and then said, "Okay, let's let's go further. Let's go further. Let's go further to San Francisco." It was like you were on this this sail and you just continued. Well, yeah, we, it took us five months. We stopped. Um, we stopped in Rarotonga, then we sailed up to Papeete, and we cruised around uh, Papeete, um, Raitia, Taha, Bora Bora for about a month. And then, interestingly, we set sail from Bora Bora to Hawaii, which should have been just a straight shot north. But we didn't know it in those days. We didn't understand the El Nino and El Nino weather patterns. But this must have been a La, La Nina year because there were no trade winds. So we kept getting pushed. We sailed everywhere. We didn't have, we had an engine, but we only used it getting in and out of port. We sailed everywhere. And we kept getting pushed east because there were no trade winds and it was very sort of light winds. So we ended up in the Tuamotos, uh, Rangaroa, uh, where we needed to stock up on some food and water. Um, and then we set off for Hawaii again, still being pushed sort of east. And we went to the Marquesas. And then we didn't stop there. We weren't allowed to actually because the French, gendarme was waiting for us on the dock we'd radioed ahead to say we were coming in and uh we'd, our visa had run out and even though we had two-year-old baby and we needed we needed supplies uh he he gave us basically 12 hours and then made sure we left so <laughs> <laughs> so we did but yeah so that's and then we got to hawaii cruised around hawaii a bit and um, and then headed off to San Francisco. That's uh, a great memory, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's like I mentioned earlier on, the navigation side of it was, was very interesting. I was reading a book at the time by Dr. David, Australian guy who was big into the Polynesian method of navigation where, you know, the, the Polynesian sailors, I mean, for thousands of years beforehand, they were just ranging across the Pacific, Western Pacific and South Pacific, pretty much. They had their own navigation techniques, looking at the, the clouds, the birds, the oceans, wave periods, wave directions, and they could just navigate for thousands of miles. And um, so that was pretty interesting. And then just sailing through, as, as I mentioned to you, you know, there was Greenpeace was, Greenpeace was um, well, they made quite a name for themselves because they sailed, four of them sailed a boat into the French testing grounds of Muraa when the French were going to let off an atomic bomb. Their testing was causing a huge ruckus down in the South Pacific, particularly with Australia and New Zealand. Greenpeace were involved in, in stopping that. But then all, you know, all the fisheries and everything like that, it was just back in the, you know, sort of late 70s, especially New Zealand, we were pretty naive, really. We really didn't know what was going on too much. But then, as I mentioned, we started to see all these all these little sort of buoys in the water. So what the hell are they? And they, they were fishing long lines. And we sailed through these things for days on end. Then one day we saw a really, really rusted trawler. I mean, these guys were sent out to sea and they were never allowed back home. And um, so then you started to then you started to sort of think about what was going on. But yeah, no, lot, lots of memories. Dived off the boat one day to clean it. We were right in the middle of the Pacific somewhere. I can't remember where, quite where. But we cleaned the bottom of the boat, three of us. One of the guys got back on board. Pretty dumb thing to do, really. And the owner and myself swam off about 100 yards away and lay on our backs in the middle of the Pacific Ocean having a chat and then swam back. And then five minutes later, I looked overboard and it was the biggest shark you've ever seen circling underneath the boat. So I thought, oh, that wasn't very smart. <laughs> But anyway. That's funny. And I guess you, you also, uh, in 
the Hawaiian near near Hawaii in the northern tier, you saw uh, gyre, you saw um, an awful lot of plastic. Yeah, it was fascinating because again, you know, we set off, and then all of a sudden, you see a few bits of plastic floating around, and then more and more and more. It would take it. Forget how long it took us from Hawaii to San Francisco. Just, you know, it was quite some time. But for days we're saying the plastic was getting more and more and more intense. And we just thought, what the hell's going on here? Someone must have dumped something. But And then when we landed in California and I started to meet people and talk to them, no one had ever heard about this. No one had ever thought about it. I don't know. They just thought, well, plastic goes somewhere, but no one. So now, I mean, now it's got a lot of attention, obviously, because it's so big and deep. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing that you saw that back in the '70s, and it's really only come to the forefront in the last five to ten years. You know, mm. uh, I'm really impressed that you uh, you made that journey with celestial navigation. That's quite an accomplishment. I can relate. In the '70s, on uh, Cousteau's Calypso, we did use some celestial navigation. We had some early, relatively primitive satellite navigation at at that point, but. Uh, we did uh, use a sextant and do some celestial as well. So that's that's pretty cool. So just to jump in, it was interesting a couple of years ago, or maybe a bit longer now, that the Naval Academy in Annapolis scrapped celestial navigation as a course. And I was horrified and other sailing friends of mine, you know, thought, wow, that's amazing. But what's interesting, now that they realize if the grid fails everything fails. They brought celestial navigation back in. So even these guys on these, you know, carriers and everything, they're all relearning celestial navigation. Hopefully they don't have to use it because it means we're all done for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it seems like it would be um, a prerequisite, though. Just uh, if you're going to be a sailor, it seems like you need to know the stars and... yeah that method. So when you got to San Francisco, is that when your boat building career began? No, as as I mentioned, I'd started, I'd uh, started in New Zealand, another surfing friend. We, we was a local designer, had designed a 26 foot catamaran, I think it was 26, basically two hulls held together with aluminum struts and pretty high speed. So we sort of taught ourselves composite boat building. We built one of these things in our backyard. Uh, and then I was started working in McMullen and Wing, which is the aluminum. Ah, actually, I worked, um, after that, I worked, well, during that time, I worked at um, a company called Yacht Spars, which was making aluminum masts. And that's where I met Peter Blake, because he was the engineer there before he went on to do, he left there to, to sail on Condor in the round the world race and that's when he sort of you know took off on his you know career of yacht racing and and stuff like that becoming very famous but then i went to mcmullen and wing and we were building sailing yachts motor yachts and uh, some commercial fishing boats and stuff like that and doing refits so I'd, I'd done quite a bit of boat building before i left new zealand just continued on with that yeah of course yeah i, I do recall you mentioning that and then you continued that when you got to the to california to the united states yeah it sounds like uh, in New Zealand when you started this, it it sounds like it was uh, a lot of hands-on, self-taught versus uh, in a school of some sort. Yes, um, it was for me. Um, 
But there was an apprenticeship system. So, you know, if you went to a boat building company to learn boat building, you, you became an apprentice. Same thing with a builder, plumber, electrician, all, all the trades. And so the boat building apprenticeship was like four years, maybe five years, so pretty intense. I came in as a welder because I'd, I'd learned to weld aluminum and steel in some of my various escapades. And uh, so then, you know, I sort of just picked up principles of boat building there. You know, as you get, as you carry on you, various projects and you learn more and more and more, it's been a lot of fun. That's interesting because uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we did a podcast with my friend Clay Wilcox, who was on Cousteau's Calypso after my period there. Mm. And uh, Clay was training to be a commercial diver and wanted to be an underwater welder. And it's just a little ironic that uh, you both had that. And Clay Clay got his, uh, his start on the ship by being the cook. Mm. He, he was a fill-in cook, and that led to diving. And then he went on to a career, actually, in aviation. Anyway, so I think this is a good time for you. You, you, you got more and more involved in larger and larger boats, right? Yeah. All, all the way up to, like, the super yachts. Yeah. Uh, can you uh, tell our audience about these large vessels? Because they're... they're they're kind of foreign to me, and they, they seem quite fascinating as far as their size and their crew and, you know, characteristics. I sort of touched on it before, you know, when I was talking about the construction and how the, these huge yachts have developed through technology and the technology available to design and build and operate these things. But um, it's a very complex sort of um, subject. But, I mean, what we, what we have right now, it's kind of interesting because... I'm still in touch with the naval architects and builders and stuff like that. Most of the big yachts uh, at the moment are built in northern Europe, in, in Germany and Holland, mainly um, big, big motor yachts, sailing boats. There's some yards in Holland and up, up in um, Finland. New Zealand had a very good um, boat building sort of resource, but unfortunately the... Um, through the when the big recession came, um, people with lots of money they wanted beautiful things and you know they're prepared to pay for it, but they weren't prepared to have something built. They had to jump on a plane, for, fly down for twelve hours. They'd rather either build it here in the states or in Europe. But the how can I describe it? It's like walking into the most beautifully, exquisitely built, maintained, operated hotel you've ever seen in your life, except it's on the water. The, I'm probably going to jump around a bit here as thoughts come to my head, but the boats have got so big now that they entered into, into the realms of ships. So the ships are all, commercial shipping is all run by uh, various flag states like the Cayman Islands, um, British flag states all over the world, um, and they're operated on a not on a tax-free basis, but on a, um, a tax-reduced basis. So these big boats are commercial. They are designed and built and maintained to a very set, strict set of rules. And so as these boats have got bigger and bigger and bigger, they've just got more more bureaucratic. They, they, they're operated, on, as I said, operated under very strict controls and Crews, uh, you know, used to be able to just go on board a boat and sail around or be on a motorboat and just be a deckhand. But now you've actually got to have a qualification to step on board, which is a good thing and really because it means the boats are constructed safely and they're operated safely. 
And crews can make a very, very good career, you know, working on these boats. And the design, the design of the boat, you have the naval architects who they'll design the structure. Uh, you'll have an interior designer who designs the interior, and sometimes they will design the exterior. Or you have exterior designers. There's a whole industry developed as these boats have got bigger. You now have galley designers, so like the kitchens on board these boats are absolutely amazing. But you have people, sometimes chefs, or more often than not chefs, and chief stewardesses who have run, run these boats, form the company, so they'll, they'll design the kitchen. So if an owner decides he wants to get a big boat done, first of all, generally... Uh, he'll go and visit a, f- a few shipyards. Um, he usually has, he's not entering into it blind. He, he's probably got a few advisors with him, mainly if he has a, a boat captain uh, from a previous boat. And it's a whole process. They'll go and visit yards. They'll talk to, they'll talk to yards, the builders. They'll talk to designers and naval architects. And then they'll sort of put together the whole team you know, it's it's a lot of people involved just in the design. So then, you know, the whole thing sort of expands out. They can spend years doing, you know, designing this thing. Interestingly enough, it's, it's a huge part for these guys who can afford these boats. Of one of the most enjoyable parts, a lot of them have said to me, is the design because they just, it takes, unless you buy a sort of, a sort of semi-stock boat but if you're doing a custom one so the owners can be involved in every aspect of the design and that to them is, is a huge amount of fun for them and of course then you get to the building and then you get get through and uh oh and you also have lighting designers you have audio visual designers the crews get so large now that you you have various aspects of of the crew again it's sort of like a ship but you can have it you can have a young person male or female can join the boat and they work around the deck and if they if they like working around the deck um, and then gradually moving up through the ranks they can move up through the ranks to sort of third officer or bosun third officer second officer first officer and the captain if the person's got a bent more towards the engineering side of it they can go through into the engineering and learning all the engines and you know the power systems, the control, and they can they can go through, up through the ranks and become a chief engineer. I mean, these guys they earn a lot of money, but they're working they're working in an environment that is just it's close to as perfect as you can get. I mean, everything nothing is compromised on these on these big boats with the engines, the engine systems, the electronics, the electrical, everything, and then the same thing with the with the, the deck crew. Um, the captains and everything. I mean, they're running these boats. They've got the, they've got the best electronics, the best navigation systems, and uh, it's just absolutely phenomenal. And then, uh, as I said, you know, and they're living in, in one of the finest built hotels in the world. One of the one of the top interior designers a few years ago at a design conference in London was because everything, you know, every joint and every piece of material, wood or Fiberglass, painted fiberglass, where everything is absolutely perfect, and everyone is so critical. Of it. And so he said, you know, we've made a rod for our own backs. He said we've made every boat that we've done so far it looks like a Stradivarius violin. He said we've set the standard, and that is what that's what's expected of us now. Because the cost of this stuff 
of of the design and the execution of the interiors is just phenomenal. I mean, I did hear a I did hear a price during the heyday when all the Russians were coming out and building, you know, just throwing money at boats left, right, and centre. There was a price I was quoted like a cubic metre, and it just blew my mind. I can't remember what the number was, but back in two thousand, back in two thousand six, just before the 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 recession, the Great Recession, prices were being quoted for one of these boats at a million dollars, a million euros a meter. So that went down a wee bit after the uh, financial crisis, but now it's back up again, and it's more than a million dollars a meter now. <laughs> yeah, so that's a sort of quick overview of these big super yachts. Yeah, it's it's a whole new world uh, for for me certainly, and it sounds uh, elegant and on one end and uh, on the other end it seems uh, excessive to some extent. But the people that have that kind of money and uh, it, it's it's quite uh, quite interesting. So let's switch gears though and talk uh, about yachting and the environment because. Uh, in preparation for our conversation, I've learned that there are some movements afoot, um, at least with certain designers and builders, to do things like uh, work on uh, hybrid propulsion systems to lower carbon emissions and even to reduce noise pollution that's emitted, which does impact marine life. And I was struck when you uh, wrote me, we exchanged some notes, and you said you're sympathetic, but not too involved with oceanic conservation. And I loved how you said at the end, so far, because to me that means, okay, well, that's maybe part of the next hope, topic. Yes. I know, <laughs> well, I know, I know you're, uh, you're sensitive uh, to, to the environment. So if you put on uh, your, an environmental, at least from the work you do, you were telling me how, you know, even in the construction process, there are a lot of materials that are used and may not necessarily be environmentally friendly, and then some of them are disposed of, yet you're probably seeing some improvements in certain areas. Can you kind of bring us up to date on what you're witnessing? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, what I was referring to is on a, on a small scale, in a way, not so much in the Super yacht world, I would think, but you know, composite construction is is very much at the forefront in development of fast race, you know, racing sailboats, um, light construction. You know, as I said, I'm restoring this restoring this classic uh, motor yacht for a, a client here in Connecticut, and we're building it out of building the interior because it was it's an old 1960s hull out of fiberglass. And um, we're rebuilding the whole interior and all the structure, and we're using a – it's a very high-density foam. It's impregnated with fiberglass, so it's very stiff and strong. I'm not quite sure the chemical – I think it's a polyurethane. It's a polyurethane foam. Uh, we're using epoxy resins and um, fiberglass cloth. But, you know, as I was saying to you, every, time, every day I'm using this stuff and we're mixing up resin and then what's left over we throw it, throw it in, a, in a rubbish bag and it goes into a dump somewhere. And this is happening all over the world. Everyone's building composite structures, you know, from our little powerboat restoration up to 
I think in Finland, there's a boat builder up there, Baltic Yachts. They build beautiful, beautiful sailing boats. Uh, they're all composite. Those guys are using pre-pregs, which is probably is better in, in that the, um, the resin, the epoxy resin is not injected, but it's combined with, with the carbon fiber and it's kept at low temperature. So it's still, so they can roll out, whereas we would roll out a piece of fiberglass cloth and pour the resin onto it and then roll it out. The resin's already infused into, into the um, carbon fiber, so they would just roll out this piece, they'd lay it down, and then they heat it and the resin sort of liquefies and then goes off. So it's a more efficient way of using the materials, but it's still, it's still a composite structure. It serves its purpose, i.e. It's, you know, it's a very strong light structure for whatever you want to do with it, whether it's a sailboat or not. But at the end of the day, it's got to go somewhere when it's old and smashed. And as seen in, in down in Florida after these hurricanes in the Caribbean, they're just shipping these boats up to Florida. They're all smashed fiberglass boats and they're burying them in landfill. I mean, so there is a move afoot to be more environmentally conscious and there are manufacturers now producing plant-based epoxy resins and also there is um, a German builder was advertising a couple of months ago. He built a boat out of using these plant-based resins. So instead of using like fiberglass or carbon fibre, he's using a flax-based cloth to laminate with, um, which I think is pretty exciting. And then so these products... I think I'm correct in saying from what little I've read, but I think they are sort of not biodegradable, they are recyclable. Um, how they would recycle those, I don't know. Maybe they grind it all up into a powder or something and then and sort of use it again. But, you know, the traditional way of just building these boats with polyester resins and fiberglass and stuff like that, and then these boats just sort of gradually just deteriorate and disintegrate and they're either cut up and buried or just, you know, dumped, and which is not good for the environment. So the more development of the plant-based resins and everything like that is, it's exciting. But, you know, you've got to start somewhere. Yeah, no, and I'm glad you brought it back to uh, um, out of the super yacht category because, like you say, these types of boats that you work on and others are working on, whether it's a restoration or, or new new construction, they're happening around the world, and, uh, uh, and and then other other boats are coming out of uh, their life ends, and there's a whole disposal issue. It never occurred to me. Uh, and then you you just mentioned ships uh, boats coming up from the Caribbean after storms. Never never contemplated that. So the, the boats are they're not being disposed of on the Caribbean islands, for example. They're actually being shipped up to Florida and put in landfills there. Yes, I think, uh, forget the, the last big hurricane that went through there and sort of decimated a bunch of marinas and boats and everything. Um, there was a move here in Connecticut or New England to go down and buy a lot of these hulls that, or these boats that have been written off by the insurers and bring them up and, and do them up and resell them, which is, which is good. But then I heard that a lot of the boats... They are, you know, completely complete write-off, not only financially but also physically. And um, the islands are too small to deal with them, so I guess 
And this this is sort of hearsay. I mean, not hearsay, but I mean, I'm not quite sure who and where and when. But um, you know, there were there were barges coming up from from the Caribbean and loaded with these smashed up fiberglass boats, brought up to Florida, and then they were just being cut up and buried in the ground. Yeah. Well, yeah. I learned uh, last year we had uh, some conversations with an organization that was. Uh, working with island nations and other countries around the world, uh, some third world countries that did not have a way to dispose of just regular plastic as well. You know, not ships, but uh, just plastic refuse. And uh, these folks had a technology that uh, uh, would uh, turn it back into diesel fuel, actually. Um, but uh, the whole recycling business is, uh, I think we've all been enlightened in the last year or two that only like 10% or less in the U.S., for example, is actually recycled, which is shocking, and hopefully that will change. But you had sent me an article about uh, this interview with Sam Holliday about the race around the world, excuse me, the race around mm. future program. And uh, these are class 40s that looks like uh, they're working on, not everyone is required to do it, but they're incenting people to uh, use, uh, sustainably refit their boats, and they're addressing end-of-life disposal issues and encouraging use of recyclable fibers and resins, for example. One thing I really liked is creating a life cycle assessment program for boat building, because whether it's boat building or anything else that we deal with in our day-to-day -day lives, a, a plastic bottle, what's the life cycle of that plastic bottle? So it seems like Sam and company are adopting some of those uh, philosophies and trying to establish some best practices. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It is cool. And I think I've sent you, I've sent you some other articles in the past as well, as far well as I've got to know you and, and um, I've seen this stuff on like 11th hour racing, which is, you know, it, it's... <laughs> an appropriate cliche you know it's like a drop in the ocean but you got to start somewhere these round the world these big round the world races i mean whenever they have a port stopover it's a huge event now and i mean there are vendors there and and it's um but one of the things that they do is that they all the boats all they're organized into into teams and they'll go to a local beach and they'll clean up the beach and of course that gets a lot of publicity and they get a lot of locals involved you know although the, the boats are all built with the fiberglasses and epoxy and everything like that but they are you know they're very aware of of the sustainability requirements and and hope and everything like that so that they are in their race in their stopovers they are you know making us quite a statement about looking after the ocean and cleaning up the beaches, cleaning up the plastics. But it's kind of sort of jumping around a bit. But I read somewhere, maybe you can verify this, that most of the plastics in the ocean can be traced back to five rivers in South Asia and Asia. And it's, it's not sort of unexpected. But then, as you say, I mean, you know, the 10% 10 recycling here in the U.S., and we're, we're supposed to be a developed country, right? <laughs> but um, getting recyclables recycled, I think, is a huge problem. And, uh, you know, you've got to have the infrastructure to do it. It's one thing to try and be like this, this young Dutchman who designed this system and patented it and that they've got it in operation in, in the North Pacific now where they're basically screening the, the top of the ocean, getting all the plastics 
dumping them on ships and then taking them back. And then you've got a guy in India who I was seeing, you know, he's set up a little screen in the drain in his village to catch all the plastics before they went down to the river, which went to the bigger river. Um, and But we, we've got to make sure that there is a whole chain whereby, and you mentioned the plastic bottle, that we have the plastic bottle, we put it in a recycling bin, but it has to actually go to be re recycled. I mean... Yeah, I think we have been fooled a bit uh, about the myth of recycling, but I think we're... I think we're wising up in, in the recent years, very, very recent years, last year or two. I know for myself, but I think the general public. I wanted to ask you, Andy, uh, if you were familiar with this. Uh, I, I had read the Turkish shipyard Bilgen, if that's the correct pronunciation, had just completed, uh, like at the beginning of this year, they had just completed a 262-foot Super yacht, not to go back to super yachts, but it, I think there's some things here that are all related. And it, 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 I read that it says it complies with the International Maritime Organization's IMO Tier Three certification requirement or requirements, and features a special exhaust system that produces 100% clean air emissions. I was wondering if if you're familiar with the uh, IMO's certifications. Is that something you deal with at all? Not well. Not at the moment. The IMO, the International Maritime Organization, it's a it's a, a UN department. They just trying to think back because the MCA, the Maritime Coast Guard Association, that is that's the British system, and that's the general recognised class associate, the class that rules for operating these boats. And when I say operating them, I mean everything. You know. All the waste tanks have to be a certain capacity. Power system has to be a certain, you know, of a certain stand. So the the, the big superyachts probably as clean as you can get in terms of the waste products coming off the boat being treated. A lot of the treatment that they can't really they can't harvest discharge once I think they're three miles offshore or something like that but even then I think in the Mediterranean for example they are pretty pretty tough on boats going and emptying out all their tanks uh, without any sort of treatment whatsoever I'm just trying to think the the IMO I'd have to I'd have to go back and refresh my memory what what they do but it's it's a set of standards how these how these boats are uh, operated on a on an overall basis, and so yeah, I can understand you know the emissions from the the engines, the smoke, and everything like that being certain certain standards, and that's pretty impressive. The Turks have got a very good boat building industry. Which just another point on that. I mean, not so much not so much the super yachts because they've got very very high high uh, performance engines in them, but these ships, commercial ships. They burn bunker oil, which is like molten tar, and I can't quote any accurate figures, but the percentage of the gases going up, depleting the ozone layer and all that stuff, the percentage that comes from ships at sea is incredible, but no one does anything about it because you can't see it. Actually, the Americans have got, I think there's a limit where you can burn bunker oil coming into the States, but 
so many hundred miles offshore, you have to switch to um, sulfur-free fuels or a much lower percentage of, of sulfur in the fuel, which is more akin to the diesel that we buy on land. So there are, you know, there are initiatives around that you don't really hear about. What that means is, is ships that are coming into the US have to have two sets of fuel tanks. They have one for the bunker oil, the big thick tar stuff, and then another set of tanks for the, uh, the, the more high-performance diesel. I don't, know, I don't know how successful they are in implementing all of this. Because the, then the types of engines that operate these things, you know, the, the, the bunker oil is the engines of these great big, huge sort of, I think, low-rev, high-torque engines clunking away with this stuff. And then you've got the high-performance engines burning the, the uh, reduced sulfur fuel. Well, just not, not to be uh, hung up on the, uh, the, the super yachts, but just to uh, just talk about, uh, I just wanted to share a couple examples uh, uh, I read about, because I, I think the technology, whether it comes from the smaller boat construction all the way up to the megas or, or in reverse order, uh, we can all learn from one another in various ways. Uh, Ocean Co. built a, a boat called the Black Pearl, it's supposed to be the world's largest sailing yacht at 360 feet mm-hmm. and uses a combination of wind power and hybrid propulsion uh, when required. And it's said it can cross the Atlantic without fuel. And when I read that, I was like, yeah, well, didn't they do that 100 years ago? You know, they, the sailing vessels would cross the, the ocean without fuel. <laughs> of course, uh, they can probably do it a lot faster and more comfortably with, uh, and I'm sure that is an awesome uh, vessel. And you were talking about uh, different construction techniques earlier instead of aluminum or steel. Apparently French designer Julien Cadro, ship called Echo or Eco, E-C-O-O, a super yacht featuring a hull made of uh, bamboo fiber. That's kind of interesting. And then uh, lastly, perhaps is uh, Fraser Yachts, 250 one-foot Yerson, a multi-purpose transocean explorer yacht with zero emissions that it says can explore the globe without a trace and uh, minimal impact on the environment. found it interesting because they said it had been inspired by uh, their their vision of Captain Cousteau. Captain Cousteau, uh, of course, is, is passed away many years ago. He had nothing to do with it, but I think in the spirit of Cousteau, mm. uh, <laughs> Of course, uh, Cousteau's 139-foot wooden World War II minesweeper was, uh, with a top speed of 11 knots, was nothing like uh, this vessel, which has a lab and a hospital on board and so forth. Uh, we, uh, it was very different. But uh, I, I was pleased that he was mentioned. And then I wanted to make one, one, uh, one last remark uh, and see if you have any uh, further comments, Andy. I just wanted to share... Uh, Another designer, uh, Dan Lennard, of uh, renowned design house Nuvolari Lennard. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, apparently he was embarking, uh, perhaps uh, this is, uh, apparently earlier this year he was embarking on a solo journey across the Atlantic in a 33-foot sailboat made from abandoned performance yacht parts. So he had compiled the parts and uh, built a uh, 33 foot sailboat to draw attention to the state of the oceans. And a couple of quotes he said I thought were worth repeating. He said, while a public beach appears to be clean due to a meticulous daily cleaning of the appointed services, a yacht 
reaching for remote places, is discovering easily the real sad state of beaches, coasts, and also the water itself. Plastic has now reached practically every part of the world's seas, Dan says. And he said, as a yacht designer from some of the most iconic super yacht builds to date, Dan firmly believes it is the responsibility of each and every person to alter our actions and habits to ensure the preservation of our oceans. We can enjoy the sea or destroy the sea. It is a choice. Mm. I thought that was very powerful. We can enjoy the sea or destroy the sea. It is a choice. Yeah. Now I think not that I've, well, I have sort of experienced in places, not so much lately, but, you know, I was working, I was building some boats in Thailand. I mean, you go to a, you go to a beautiful beach in Thailand and you walk down and there's black gloves and I was going to kick one. I just hadn't been there long. I was going to kick this, what I thought was a rock or something. Someone said, oh, don't kick that. It's oil. And, you know, it's just gloves of oil on the beach. And, and, you know, you see in the, I guess I guess it's in yachting magazines and, and people on Facebook and stuff when they you know they they're able to sail to these islands they go to these islands all over the world and beaches and it's just they are just trashed with plastic bags and that's it's um, they're carried there by the wind and the currents I mean sometimes these islands are, are, you know they're not they're not big enough and don't have a big enough population to generate all that all that stuff but it's it sort of washes in and floats in but then you you get you get countries where people don't care and you know i've been to a few of them and they're just not aware of of their environment um you know sort of third world countries and stuff like that and they just generate so much rubbish certainly we don't do anything to help them you know there's no sort of major operations to try and help them get rid of their rubbish just sell them more plastic plastic bags Basically. Yeah, yeah, and uh, just like with uh, with the uh, the boats that get damaged in the storms in the Caribbean uh, and other locations, uh, island nations don't have the real estate. They don't have the infrastructure to properly dispose of uh, plastic and other waste. So uh, that's that's part of the problem. And uh, I I don't know. I, I I appreciate you spending some time with us today to talk about the uh, your, your very interesting life, your wonderful voyage, and your career. We're very interesting, and we've got a little insight into what you do, what boat designers and boat builders do, and uh, I think some good things are coming. Uh, if we can keep having conversations like this and bringing the topics to the forefront and addressing them in creative manners, uh, we can uh, we can turn this thing around. Yes, I did say to you once when we first met, I was a skeptic, but <laughs> you know, it is there is a lot of people out there trying really really hard to to solve this problem, and it is you know it's it's an uphill battle, but um, maybe by you and I having this chat, I should think about doing some more about it <laughs> yeah well we can uh we, we we i'd look forward to further conversation and uh possibly teaming up in one way or another at future frogmen we try to uh, build awareness and uh, we do that through communication and education and also action in today's COVID environment and in 2020, our hands are a little bit tied, but we're still doing a lot of action virtually and some activism too. So uh, uh, 
uh, we look forward to uh, much greater action in the, in the future years. Thank you so much for spending time with us today, Andy. That's right, it's very exciting. Thank you for the opportunity. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. If you'd like to see more from us, you can check us out on social media at Future Frogman or on our website, futurefrogman.org, where we post videos, writings, and all of our podcasts. We release episodes every Monday, but until next time, remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Thank you.